We're continuing this discussion called Truth in Love. And the conversation started from uh, Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about engaging in difficult and conflicting conversations in a way where what we're revealing is that in Christ we're growing up, that we're maturing. We, we believe in a gospel that says Jesus meets us where we are. He accepts us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. He's maturing us. He's growing us up, and he's growing us up, namely, into himself, into him who is the head, into Christ. And as he's growing us up, one of the marks that we are growing, that we're maturing, is that we can engage in delicate conversations with truth in love. And the reality is if, if truth is contained in love, then you can't have one without the other. And, and we, we, we believe that we exist in a day and in a time where it says, man, if I speak the truth and it disagrees with you, I must be unloving. And if I love you, I can't say anything contrary to you. And the reality is truth and love are not at odds. As a matter of fact, they're so interconnected, we can't have one without the other. And we've talked about it, engaging with truth and love conversations like, is America a Christian nation? Were we ever? Is that even the point? What does that mean? No, it means we have the privilege as Bible-believing followers of Jesus to be weird. We have the great privilege in this nation to be the minority voice. We're not looking for the government to endorse our views or to agree with us on everything. We're not that insecure. The reality is we don't stand on a, on a political foundation. We stand on a biblical foundation. Last week, we, we took that conversation into the topic of life. And we're going to circle back to the same place we started in our conversation last week as we address this week the topic of violence. This week, the Texas Department of Public Safety was made aware of a memo from Fort Sill, Oklahoma. The U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command Field Office released a memo last week among their service personnel issuing a warning about potential threats surrounding the release of a new film this week, the Joker film. The heightened realistic violence in that movie, they've said there's not a specific threat, but there's just a warning to be aware this kind of violence can incite violence. This is while currently still in the theaters is the 900th Rambo movie. It's called Last Blood, but I still think there's going to be more blood if he's still alive, right? He's like 90 years old now, beating people up with a cane. Like, that's, and it's being lauded as super violent, go figure. And this is in the same summer where John Wick 3 was released. We're paying more attention as a culture to the celebration of violence like this because we're concerned about what we see in our culture, specifically last year. 2018 was the worst year yet on record for school shootings in America with 82 recorded incidents of school shootings or schools on campus in the U.S. And what's interesting about this is this is a very American problem. The United States has 57 times more school shootings than all the other major industrial nations combined. This is a very American issue, but I believe it deserves a very biblical response. So I invite you please to grab your Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And let us say to you, if you don't own a Bible, we just believe this is a special book. It's where we kind of base our whole conversation. So please let that be our gift to you today. We'd love for you to keep that. 
And then for all of our guests, we invite you to join with us in our tradition before we jump in to what the book says. We hold it up in the air and say a creed together. And if this is where you are in your spiritual journey, then join with us this morning. Let's hold it up and let's say this together. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where we began our conversation about life last week. Spoiler alert, it's where we will begin next week as well. Probably the week after and probably even the week after that. Because this is a foundational, important view that that if we don't go back to the beginning. If you remember last week I used the analogy of if you start watching your favorite show in the middle of an episode and you realize you don't know the plot. And so we don't address these topics from our role in the story. We go back to the beginning of the episode, namely the Genesis narrative, where we find an understanding, a foundation from which all of these conversations make more sense. We're going to look at the same uh, three verses that we looked at last week, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. We talked last week, what does that mean? Does that mean that God is six foot two and balding and has a big nose and a big forehead? What does that mean in his image or after his likeness? And at least part of what it means to bear the image of God is this. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we see that it's God who is doing the creating. We see it's his image in which he's placing on his creation that places special value on human life. So God's the one doing the creating. What's he doing? He's placing his image. How does he do that? Well, that's in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verse number 7. How God creates How God places his image is this. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature, a living creation, a living soul. This is the work of God. We believe that after this, some things changed and some things didn't. What did not change is God is still the creator, as much as in Genesis chapter 1. What did not change is God is still placing his image on humankind, just like in Genesis 1. What did not change is God is forming that life from its very beginning. What did change is where God does the forming. What changed after Genesis chapter 2 is God's no longer forming life, bearing his image in the dirt. He's now forming that life in the womb. All of that changes. And what we see is God forms the very first life in the womb. It's a baby boy. His name is Cain. God forms the second life in the womb. His name is Abel. And of the first two lives formed in this new way, one kills the other. Of the first two lives formed in the womb, one, the elder, murders 
the younger. And what that tells us this morning is violence is not a new problem. It's as old as Genesis chapter 4. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's at the very front. (laughs) Violence is not a new problem. And and I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that there's this fantastic book called Reading, uh, Misreading, rather, The Scripture Through Western Eyes. And, And what the author says is we tend to read the Bible through the lenses of our own culture, right? But the authors also say we tend to read the Bible through the lenses of our own generation, as though our struggles are unique to us. We're the most special generation that's ever existed. You know, no, that's the millennials. I'm just kidding. Uh, we, we're not as unique as we think we are. Violence isn't new to us. We're talking about it as though it's this brand new problem. But it's as new as Genesis 4. And it's actually older than that. Because as soon as the fall happens in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as humankind chooses to sin against God, God confronts Adam. And Adam only has two pointer fingers and he uses both of them to say, the woman that you gave me, it's her fault. We've been in conflict ever since. This is not a new phenomenon. Now we see it manifesting itself in different ways in our culture. But even this idea of school violence isn't new. The first recorded instance of school violence was in 1840. And I'm not a historian, but I'm like, didn't they just have like rocks and wood back then? Like I didn't even know they had that kind of gun violence in 1840. This is not a new problem. Which means we don't need a new position. We need a timeless argument about these issues. We need an approach that has stood the test of generation after generation, civilization after civilization. I believe we need the timeless mind and heart of God on these issues. And what we find is much of his perspective is counterculture. And what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at this idea of violence and the threat to human life from, first of all, kind of a governmental or national or even state position. And then we're going to funnel it down to a personal response when it comes to the personal protection of life. And what we see in the beginning of the Genesis story is, in Genesis chapter 9, God reveals his heart about the value of human life. Because let's remember our foundation as image bearers. Let's remember this. We we talked about this last week. As image bearers, all human life has value. It doesn't have value that it earned because it was good human life, or it was profitable human life, or productive human life. It is value because it bears the image of God. We believe it begins to bear that image in its womb. It bears that image after death into all eternity. We bear the image of God, which means all human life has value. And with that foundation, then, we enter first into the conversation around the idea of capital punishment and the government taking a life to defend life. Genesis chapter 9, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Because we bear the image of God, God says the only fitting response to life being taken is to take life. And this is not a conversation that I enjoy having this morning. This is not a conversation that we want to sit around the water cooler at work and be like, how do you feel about killing people? 
This is a, a heavy topic, but a topic that I believe from Genesis chapter 9, God speaks into. And if we understand the value as image bearers, this will begin to make more sense. That the only fitting response to taking human life is forfeiting the right to live. When the law is given, the thing that would govern, the first governmental structure for the people of God in Exodus 21 verse 12, God says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. When the law is given, it's repeated in the the Levitical law, in Leviticus chapter 24, God says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. When we reach the New Testament in, in Genesis chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is telling the church in Rome, listen, all government institutions were placed there by God, the ones you agree with and the ones you don't. A sovereign God has placed those governing authorities there. And then he says this about those governing authorities. He's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He uses it when necessary. He's the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Which means it's appropriate that from a national defense perspective that our government would use the sword or the modern technology of the sword to defend life when it is vulnerable, to pursue freedom for its people. It means that from a state perspective, that the state would bear the sword in the form of capital punishment. This this idea of capital punishment is, is a difficult, difficult conversation. And by the way, let me say this. It's a conversation that you're not obligated to agree with what God says. I believe the Scripture's clear, but we have the privilege of freedom of speech, freedom of dissent. That means if you feel that a war is unjust, you have the right to articulate that in a healthy and a respectful way. We're looking today at what a biblical worldview would represent, and I believe that's presented really well by the former head of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, Dr. Richard Land. And this is a lengthy quote, but I think it's helpful. He says this, Human life is sacred. That's where we have to start. Either it is or it isn't. Human life is sacred. Anybody who wantonly and premeditatively takes another human being's life and is found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt by a jury of his or her peers has forfeited his or her right to life. And then he says this, it's the only way, it's the only way society can bear fitting tribute to the heinousness of murder. If human life is sacred because it bears the image of God, then the only fitting response to life being taken is to forfeit the right to life. And perhaps that that sounds like a contradiction to you. Perhaps you were here last Sunday and you heard me contend for life. And you're like, wait a second. Last week you were sending the message that that, that the biblical presents a pro-life view. And now you're saying that we should be pro-capital punishment based on the scriptures. I'm confused. Isn't that a contradiction? Listen, I don't believe it's a contradiction at all. Conversely, I don't think the other position is a contradiction. Most people who who do not advocate for life in the womb, also advocate against capital punishment. And it goes to reason. 
if I don't hold life in the womb at a high value, I probably won't hold life outside the womb at a very high value. If, if I'm not bothered by life ending in the womb, I probably won't be as bothered as life ending outside the womb. But if I believe that life has value because it bears the image of God in the womb, I'm going to feel the same way about life outside the womb. And if I feel called to protect life in the womb, then I feel called to protect life outside the womb. And I believe the most fitting protection of human life is the ending of lives who don't value life. I don't believe it's a contradiction at all. It might not be popular, but I don't think it's a contradiction. Now, to be clear, as Christ followers, we do not celebrate capital punishment. We grieve it. If our position on gun rights, military defense, just war, capital punishment is aggressive and loud and arrogant and heartless, that is not reflecting truth and love. That is not reflecting the heart of Jesus. As Christians, we don't believe capital punishment is the gotcha. Because we don't think that's a gospel narrative. That's not the heart of Jesus. It's, it's not about revenge. Getting back at someone for doing something wrong. That's not the heart of the gospel. I do not condone his humor. It is quite crass and irreverent. But about 15 years ago, a comedian from Texas named Ron White had part of his popular stand-up routine surrounding the topic of capital punishment. What he would say in that part of his routine is he said, where I'm from in the state of Texas, we don't just have the death penalty, we use it. And people would clap and laugh and cheer. And then the next line of his act, he would say, if you come to our state and you kill us, we will kill you back. And people would laugh and clap and cheer. And what I would say is the people of God, capital punishment, the taking of a human life, is no laughing matter. It's not something we're proud of. There's not bravado with that. And maybe, maybe it's very Texan to be loud and arrogant about that. But I don't believe it's very Christian. We grieve. We grieve the taking of a human life. We're not proud of it. And the fact is we, we grieve the taking of human life knowing that by doing so, by advocating for capital punishment, we are in the minority of the minority. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, apparently there is such a thing published online by Amnesty International, less than 33% of Americans prefer the death penalty for murders, for murderers. Less than a third. Which means a biblical worldview on this topic makes us the minority. But I believe it does also make us consistent with our worldview. We are the people who do whatever it takes to protect human life. Because we believe that life bears the image of a holy God. The God to whom we have pledged our allegiance. The God who has purchased us. Now, why are most Americans against the death penalty? Let's talk about that for a minute. So, um, two statistical reasons. One is, um, the death penalty is actually very expensive. Because of, of the lengthy judicial process behind it, because of how humane 
that we do that as a nation now. Some estimate it's 20 times more expensive to put someone to death than it is life without parole. I think another reason that Americans don't prefer it is many Americans say they don't think it works. And here's the problem with that. As a nation in modern history, we have been so inconsistent with the death penalty that I don't think we have enough data to know if it works or if it doesn't work. For instance, every day I watch on this hill parents threaten punishment to their children that the children know the parents have no intention of carrying through. And it doesn't change their behavior. But I also watch parents threaten punishment to their children and the children's behavior changes because those children understand they mean it. We don't know if the death penalty is effective because far too often we've threatened a punishment that, they, had, that we, they knew we had no intention to carry out. So I don't believe the data has been consistent enough to know if it works or if it doesn't work. And the fact is that's not how we base our decisions on what is right and what is wrong. A biblical worldview is not just based on pragmatism. It's based on what we believe God says. But the real reason, the heart reason that I believe this statistic is true is I believe most Americans don't understand the life-altering, profound glory of bearing the image of God. I think most Americans don't know how incredible it is that we are image bearers. Therefore, the cause of human life is not advocated for in an appropriate level of passion in our nation. So that's the big picture, capital punishment and military defense of our nation. Let's funnel this conversation down. What about when life is being threatened in my presence and I have the means to do something about it? Let's talk about gun control. That should be fun. We know that people with horrible, murderous intentions, can do awful things with guns. We also know that sometimes the only way to stop those people is with more guns. This is a very divided topic. What Justin Taylor said is he said, on the left side of the political spectrum... Some Christians have argued that as peacemakers, Christians should support tight gun controls. On the right, some Christians have described gun ownership as a sacred obligation given to us by God himself. And here's the thing about both of those positions. Neither are accurate. As peacemakers, we don't actually think that Jesus is saying don't defend the powerless. As peacemakers, that whole idea of turning the other cheek does not mean to defend the innocent. That's a misrepresentation of a Christian worldview. I would also say that God has not given us the right to bear arms. That is not in 2 Corinthians. It is in the Second Amendment. We do believe we have that right. It's just not in the Bible. And so somewhere between these two extremes is a healthy conversation where we can actually speak the truth in love. And I want to say this while I'm here, and this will be something we'll repeat about several topics moving forward. I believe in our brokenness, we love the extremes. 
We love the radical extremes when it comes to positions. And here's why. We are lazy thinkers. Because the extremes are seldom rational or well thought out. If I go to the extreme position, I don't actually have to think this through very much. Here's the other thing. If I run to the extreme, the further I get from other people who have positions different from me, the less human they are. But when I come to a table with a person who disagrees with me, and I carry myself with dignity and with grace, and I hear their position, they are humanized. And now it's not about winning arguments. It's about winning hearts. And if anybody is going to lead the charge for rational, loving conversations around topics like this, it has to be the people of God. If we are not the rational voice in the conversation, who is? Because here's, here's the reality. There are no simple solutions when it comes to guns. The reason that the Senate can't pass the smallest reform regarding guns is because it's not a simple conversation. It's complicated. Which means we need to have healthy conversations. Around the conversation, there seems to be seven issues that draw the most uh, emotion from both sides of these views. Seven issues within the gun control conversation. Background checks, bans on certain assault rifles and high-capacity magazines, child access prevention laws, uh, revised concealed carry laws, licensing and permitting requirements, minimum age requirements, and waiting periods. And both sides seem to say, don't you dare, or this will fix everything. And here's the thing. The RAND Corporation has done tremendous in, uh, investigation and research. In states where these seven laws are already in place, there are no fewer mass shootings than in states where there are not. This is not the magic fix. But there is some pretty sound logic in these seven things. In the state of Texas, there is a waiting period to get a marriage license. If when we're getting married, they're like, think this over. Don't you think that's rational? Listen, you, you can't get a driver's license without proving to someone that you kind of know what to do with it. There's rational conversations to be had here. And I believe as the people of God, we should be leading the unemotional, rational conversations. Leading the charge, coming first to the table. The reason this is a complicated argument is because even though we're less than 5% of the global population, we own approximately 46% of the world's guns. Further research reveals that 41% of those are in the state of Texas. That's not true. I, I just made that up. <laughs> One of the reasons we have a lot of the world's guns is because we have a lot of the world's financial resources. But the reality is that this is a complex issue. And I've got to be honest with you. Listen, nobody's going to turn over the Second Amendment. Stop. Can we please stop? Both sides, stop. 
if Beto is elected, he is not going to take all of our guns. Because if elected, he's not going to become the dictator of the United States of America. If elected, he would become the president who has to work with the House and the Senate under the authority of the judicial system governed by the Constitution of the United States. He cannot single-handedly overthrow the Second Amendment. Can we please be rational? And if we respond to ridiculous, emotional, illogical statements with emotion and irrational responses, we are not helping the situation. We are part of the problem. So let's turn off both MSNBC and Fox News and let's sit down with a human and have a rational conversation about this. And even if it happened, I love this. Joe Carter did this math. Even if we repealed the Second Amendment tomorrow and went door to door taking everyone's guns from them and we collected a million guns per month in America, it would take 33 years to get all of the guns. Nobody's coming to take your guns. Calm down. Let's have a rational conversation about this. Let's be the people who enter the conversation and say, there's a bigger issue at play here. And we have seen in countries where gun control laws are incredibly tight that people still commit mass murder with knives and automobiles. Last year in Toronto, a man rented a van and drove into a crowd and killed 10 people with a van. And no one's seeking to put a ban on Enterprise Rent-A-Car. And his defense, that case actually went to trial this past week. His defense, we have our kids in here today. His defense is that he was intimately frustrated. He had built up frustrations. That's his defense. By all means, go plow into a crowd, yes. Because at the end of the day, the, the issue of violence can't be solved by legislation. It can only be solved by heart change. Now, do we need to have some healthy conversations about legislation? Of course. But we need to be wise enough to know that can't fix the heart. But we know the heart fixer. We know him and we proclaim him and we love him. And so we enter the conversation with wisdom, and with grace. And maybe we should be the people having the conversations that nobody else is. For instance, in 40% of the mass shootings in America, what we know is alcohol played a part and marijuana usage and or other drugs. And I don't ever hear anybody talking about that. As a matter of fact, many of the same people who are trying to legislate against capital punishment are legislating for legalization of marijuana. The same people who are saying, we have a crisis of violence, are ignoring the mental health effects of marijuana usage in our culture. We're ignoring the physical effects of marijuana usage in our culture. Which is why we're going to discuss that in a few weeks. 
I don't know a single politician who's going out there and saying, you know what, domestic violence because of alcohol abuse in the home is a bigger problem in our culture than gun violence. I don't know a single, single politician saying that because there's no way you get elected on that platform. But we ain't running for office, y'all. We can have that conversation. Let's talk about the stuff that actually matters. Let's talk about addressing personal responsibility. In 80% of school shootings, the shooter got their weapons from family members. And in this age of culture, nobody wants to take responsibility for everything. We want to blame it on everything else and everybody else. Listen, here's the deal. Let's hold one another accountable. If we're not teaching our children about the dangers of guns, that we have guns in our house, if we don't have them properly secured, if we haven't trained them, that's on us. We should be the ones saying, let's have conversations about personal responsibility. Maybe the responsibility begins at home. Go figure. And speaking of home, let's address the violence in our own homes. Research reveals that domestic violence within the church is the same as it is outside the church. We're we're spending so much time talking about the horror of these mass shootings, and that is appropriate. We should be having these conversations. But let's also talk about what's going on in the secrets, in the broken hearts of kids who don't want to tell anybody about the hell they are living in in their Christian home. Furthermore, in Christian homes, what are we exposing our families to through our entertainment? I amended this from another pastor, but I felt this was fitting for us today. We are horrified by the slaughter of the innocent in El Paso while being entertained by the killing in Game of Thrones and the Walking Dead. We react with disbelief at the gruesomeness of these news reports But then we let our kids plug in their video game consoles where they shoot and stab and decapitate incredibly lifelike people on the screen. We grieve the stolen innocence of our children while the most popular movies in our culture involve violent sexual fantasies. We sing hymns of remembrance of the victims of violence while many of our kids' playlists are filled with explicit lyrics that are violent and angry and aggressive and filled with rage and are particularly degrading to women. Maybe we should start at home. The rest of the world views the movies that we watch and they don't understand why we're so infatuated with violence. Many of our biggest hits on the big screen in America have to be changed and amended when they're released internationally because the rest of the world won't go see those movies with that level of violence the same culture that's watching more realistic lifelike violence than any generation before is the same generation saying why do we have so much more violence than before Maybe we need to pay attention to what we're filling our minds and our hearts with. 
let me say this too. As the people of God, if we're speaking the truth in love, if we're the rational voice at the table having the conversation, let, let me just say this. We must stop using our children to push our legislative views. Rhetoric like they love guns more than they love children. Rhetoric like they want to steal all of the freedoms from our children. Can we please stop using our kids to try to get our way politically? It's abusive. It's disrespectful to them. And can we please stop scaring them to death? Here's a little information, okay? And I'm going to give some numbers. If you're not the numbers type, try try to hear what I'm about to say. The last year that we have finalized statistics is a few years old, 2016. In 2016, 787 children died accidental deaths. It was the number one killer of children ages 5 to 9. Accidents, drownings, car accidents. Terrible. 787 children. Dramatically fewer, number two, cause of death of children was childhood cancer. Four down the list was violent deaths. 787 children in one year died from common accidents. The Washington Post has done research about school shootings specifically since Columbine. The tragic shooting at Columbine High School was 1999. It's 20 years ago. In those 20 years, with all the research they can pull together, including not just children, but men, women, and children, combined total of less, and this is tragic, But less than 150 men, women, and children have been killed in school shootings since Columbine. Not 150 per year. Not 150 per decade. Less than 150 in 20 years. Which is tragic. But can we please stop scaring our kids to death? I really wonder if a generation from now they're going to talk about our day the way we now talk about cold war parents. Cold War parents scaring our kids to death about nuclear war. Can we please be a rational voice that speaks confidence over our children that they are loved by a sovereign God who rules and reigns and does all things well? We don't serve a God who's biting his fingernails hoping that we'll all be okay by the end of the day. We serve a God who rules and reigns. We are not a people rocked by fear. We are a people who've been grounded in faith. And what's happening in this conversation right now is we're using fear-mongering to win our political positions. And what's at stake is the hearts of our kids. Leave them alone. Encourage them. Speak confidence over them. Here's our final thought. As the people of God, we must love people who bear the image of God. And in case you missed it, that's everybody. Including people on both extremes, on both sides of the aisle. We're called to love people. If anybody should be engaging in a conversation about life and death, 
It should be the people who understand the value of life. It should be the people of God. It it should be the people whose worldview is shaped by the fact that God took the image of man so that he could willingly lay down his life to save our eternal souls. That we were so worth it as image bearers that he sacrificed his son to rescue us. To give us life. We're the people who've experienced the value of the image of God. So surely we should be the voice that communicates that for the sake of this generation and the generation to come. Because we believe that more than life and death is at stake in this conversation. We believe eternal life and eternal death is at stake in this conversation. At the end of the day, we're not a people of positions politics we're the people of God which means ultimately we don't love our guns we love Jesus and we love people and we don't love our rights we love Jesus and we love people and we don't love our freedoms we love Jesus and we love people We don't love violence. We love Jesus. And we love people. And today, if you don't know for sure that you've experienced the transforming love of God over you, I want you to hear, as clear as I can say it, you are loved by God. He loves you. He sees you. He wants nothing more than to give you life. If you don't know for sure you've ever experienced that, what Jesus calls being born again, a whole new beginning. If, if you don't know that you've ever experienced that, then what's going to happen in just a moment is I'm going to close our time of preaching here with a word of prayer. And after I'm done, we're going to sing a song about the greatness of our God. And while we do that, there's going to be some men and women in the prayer room in the back. I'm going to be down front with Lance. And man, if you're not sure where you are in your relationship with God, there's nothing more we love today to just have a conversation with you. Nobody's going to pressure you. Nobody's going to try to sell you. We just want to have a conversation with you. Maybe this morning you walked in here feeling pretty hopeless and the last thing you wanted to talk about today was gun control. Listen, we'd love to just say a prayer of encouragement over you this morning. Maybe there's somebody in your life that's hurting and you want to pray for them. Listen, we're here for you. If there's anything we can come alongside and encourage you and pray with you about because we believe you're loved by God. We believe you bear his image. And that means you have incredible value.